Welcome to Nationwide Market Insights for April 4th, 2022. The quarterly Nationwide Market Insights launched today, providing commentary and insight into the economy and financial markets. Nationwide's Deputy Chief Economist Brian Jordan is here today, provides highlights and perspective on the Nationwide Market Insights quarterly report for the beginning of Q2 2022. To view the quarterly report while you listen to this podcast, you can visit nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. So Brian, thanks for being here today. Let's start off with the U.S. equity market section. Yeah, I see several pages in here that focus on corrections in the financial markets, and specifically pages six, seven, and eight. What could our audience take away from these pages? Sure. So there were many big stories in the first quarter. Oftentimes we have one big story on a quarter to quarter basis. There were several big stories in Q1. The inflation rate continued to climb. We hit 7.9% on the CPI inflation rate. The Federal Reserve launched the first tightening cycle of this economic cycle, raising short-term interest rates. And we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a major geopolitical event. All of these things manifest in a decline in, in the S&P 500, a decline in most of the major equity market indices. And in fact, the S&P fell into its first correction of this cycle. Correction is any decline between 10 and 20%. What we're showing on these pages is that corrections happen frequently. Um, they tend to be short-lived and they tend to give way to fairly strong recovery. So first of all, on page six of our deck for the second quarter, we show just how normal corrections are. We've had 26 corrections in the history of the S&P 500. Every single bull market in the history of the index has had at least one correction. And in fact, they've happened with more regularity in recent cycles. In fact, the last cycle from 2009 to 2020 had five corrections. So these are very normal occurrences within a bull market. On page seven, we're showing that they tend to be very short-lived. They tend to run their courses very, very quickly. In fact, on average, a correction lasts for just over four months. And of those 26 prior corrections in the history of the index, going all the way back to the 1920s, we've only had two that have lasted longer than a year. There was one in the late 1950s and early 1960s and one in the late 1970s. Other than that, every other one lasted less than a year. Many lasted just for a month or two. And then finally, and perhaps more, more importantly, as we look forward on page eight, um, we look at what happens to the stock market after corrections. And we see here that corrections give way to very big recoveries, very big rebounds on average in the year after corrections come to an end, the S&P rises by 26.5%. And you can see in most cases um, on this page, we've had double digit increases at least in the year after corrections. In fact, the market is so strong after corrections that if we look at the, uh, the average change from the year after the beginning of corrections, you know, so incorporating the 10 to 20% decline, beginning from the start of corrections, the S&P historically has still averaged an increase, um, even incorporating that, that 10 to 
decline. So we tend to get pretty strong rebounds coming out of these periods. Well, staying here with the stock market for a second, let's let's expand that to talk about what's happening. Looks like we're entering into a tightening cycle right now. Uh, what can you tell us as far as the impacts that might have on the stock market? Sure, it's it's um you know a great segue here. Corrections tend to be relatively short lived. Corrections tend to happen around short term periods. Tightening cycles tend to, to to be longer in nature. And over the course of tightening cycles. The market tends to do okay. We tend to see positive returns, but it te- they tend to be muted returns. Um, on average, we've had low to mid single-digit returns when the Fed has been raising short-term interest rates. Going back to the 1970s, early 1970s, the S&P 500 has averaged 3.4% annualized during Federal Reserve tightening cycles. Now, it's only declined once. Um, over the course of the last half century during a tightening cycle. That was back in the early 1970s when the Fed continued to raise rates, even as the economy fell into a recession um, in late 1973 and into 1974. In every other case, the return has been positive. But again, the returns have been modest. A little bit better in in recent years, since the 1990s, a 5% annualized change in the S&P during tightening cycles. So we tend to see a positive gain in the market during these periods, during these long-term periods, but not an especially robust gain when the Fed is raising rates. That was on page nine. And just to remind our listeners too, if you wanted to follow along with us today, you can go to nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics to find the current version of our NMI for Q2. And now, Brian, let's, let's transition now from equity markets and talk about fixed income. We're going to look at page 17 in the NMI. It says declines in fixed income rarely cascade. What can you tell us about that one and the next page too, if you don't mind? So sure. So the um, you know the story in the stock market was we had a correction in the first quarter. The story in the bond market is we had our worst quarter since the early 1980s. Um, the Bloomberg Ag was down at its uh, fastest pace since the early 1980s. What we're showing here on page 17 is that those declines, or declines in general, rarely cascade in the bond market because we have carry in the bond market because you're getting that fixed income um, as a fixed income investor, as a bond market investor. We rarely see long-term sustained declines. Um, And so here we're showing what happens to the Bloomberg Ag, the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Market Index, in the quarter after quarterly declines. Now, this index goes back to the mid-1970s. And since that time, we've only had 10 back-to-back quarterly declines in this index. And in fact, we've only had one back-to-back-to-back um, three consecutive decline episode in the history of the index. We tend to see nice bounce backs after um, after the bond market moves lower. If we turn to page 18, uh, we've got another chart on the fixed income market showing what happens to treasuries in particular when the Fed is raising short-term interest rates. The story is very similar here as it is for the stock market. We tend to see positive returns in the treasury market. Again, that carry tends to help these returns stay in positive territory when the Fed is raising interest rates, but they tend to be very muted returns when the Fed is raising short-term interest rates in the low single digits. Another trend we see here is that if we go back to the 1970s, 
in the early part of this time horizon, it was generally true that the short end of the market, the short end of the treasury market, outperformed the longer end of the treasury yield curve when the Fed was raising interest rates. Longer term, uh, the longer term area of the curve is more interest rate sensitive for obvious reasons. And so we tended to see it underperforming during these periods. In more recent years, when we've started from very low short-term interest rates, as we're starting this cycle, Fed started raising interest rates with the lower end of its of its target range at zero in March. When in recent years, when we've started with these low rates, the shorter end of the treasury yield curve has underperformed the longer end. That may very well be the case in this cycle as well. Thanks, Brian. And turning the page now from equity markets to commodities, let's start with page 22, which tells us that commodities are little changed over the long run. What is this page telling us and why is that important for our readers? So it's it's a great question because commodity prices have been very much in the news in, in recent months. They soared again in the first quarter. It was a broad-based increase. Obviously, energy prices led the increase, but we saw increases across the commodity spectrum, metals prices rising, grains prices rising, obviously energy prices moving up as well. But if we look over the course of history, commodity prices tend not to move very much. We tend to see a lot of mean reversion. We see big increases followed by big decreases. And we tend to see these uh, prices move in long-term super cycles. You see a big increase as we're going through today. There is a supply response, and that supply response eventually leads uh, to a large decline on the other side. So if we look back historically and take a a recent 25-year period from 1995 to 2020, we see that stock prices, as proxied by the S&P 500, rose by an annualized 9.5%. This is total rate of return, so including dividends for equities. Um, Bond prices, as proxied by the Bloomberg Ag, rose by 5.2% annualized, so a decent mid-single-digit gain for bonds. Same thing for for house prices, as proxied by the Case-Shiller Index, 4.3% annualized for house prices. But commodities moved moved higher by just 0.4% on an annualized basis during that time. Um, there's a reason we use the word commodity for something that doesn't tend to improve much in value over time, something that, that has uh, relatively little value over time or a little change in value over time. Commodity prices themselves from year to year, or in, as we've seen recently from quarter to quarter, Um, And very large declines, over time, they tend to be unchanged. The second half of the NMI focuses on the U.S. economy, both on a national level and a regional level. And one thing that we're hearing quite a bit right now is about the Fed's decision to tighten monetary policy. Just last month, for example, the Fed raised rates for the first time since 2018. Now, I see several pages here in the NMI that focus on that starting with page 29. So let's look at page 29 here. What are some of the key items that our readers will learn from this page and also page 30, 31, and 32 that talk about the the Fed? So on page 29, we're looking at how the economy has performed during rate hike cycles, during Federal Reserve tightening cycles. Earlier in the deck, we showed um, how the stock market performed, performed during tightening cycles. We showed how the bond market 
performed during tightening cycles. Here we're showing how the economy at large has performed during tightening cycles. And actually, we've seen pretty strong growth during these periods. On average, the uh, real GDP has grown by 4.1% on an annualized basis while the Fed has been raising short-term interest rates. That's uh, a very strong rate of growth. In fact, it outperforms the, the average rate of growth over this entire period, going back to the early 1970s. And the underlying story here is very similar to that for stock prices or, or, or even for the fixed income market, is that the causality runs both ways here. You know, the, the Fed influences the stock market, the Fed influences the bond market, the Fed influences the economy. That influence largely happens with a lag, however. But in turn, the stock market, the bond market, virtually every financial market, as well as the real economy, influence the Fed. If the economy were to weaken or if stock prices were to weaken appreciably or if there were to be um, a real issue in the fixed income market, that would likely cause the Fed to pull back and at least temper its pace of rate hikes, if not stop rate hikes altogether. We've seen historically as the economy moves into a recessionary phase um, the, that the Fed has um, has has transitioned from raising short-term interest rates to lowering short-term interest rates. But the point here on page 29 is that while the Fed is tightening, the economy actually does um, historically tend to do fairly well with a 4.1% average annualized gain in real GDP. On page 30, we're looking at the length of time between when the Fed starts raising short-term interest rates and when the economy does tip over into a recession. That's a big concern um, now with the Fed starting to raise short-term interest rates in March. What we're showing here on page 30 is we typically have a long runway between the beginning of a Fed tightening cycle and the outset of a recession. Historically, the average has been roughly four years from the beginning of a Fed rate hike cycle to the end of an expansion, the beginning of a recession. Even if we exclude the soft landings, we had a soft landing in the mid-1980s, we had another soft landing in the mid-1990s where the Fed raised short-term interest rates and it didn't directly lead into a recession. Even if we exclude those periods, um, the average is still close to three years between the beginning of a rate hike cycle and the beginning of a recession. So we shouldn't expect, just because the Fed is, has started to raise interest rates, that a downturn is imminent. So we'll turn from that to page 31. Here we show that the Fed overestimated its tightening in the last cycle, or at least at the outset of the last cycle, that we should take the Fed's forecasts with a grain of salt. You know, the Fed raised a lot of eyebrows in March when it bumped up its forecast for rate hikes this year. In December, the Fed anticipated that it would raise rates in 2022 by 0.75%. In March, the Fed updated that forecast to suggest that it would raise rates by 1.75%, a pretty substantial bump up in its own estimate of, of tightening this year. But again, we, if we look back to the last cycle, we see that the Fed overestimated what it was going to do, especially in the early stages of the cycle. Right before the Fed started to raise rates in 2015, um, in 2014, it anticipated 100 basis points, one full percentage point increase in the Fed funds target in 2015. As it happened, the Fed only raised rates in 2015 by 0.25%.
So the same thing happened again at the end of 2015. At the end of 2015, the Fed forecast one full percentage point in rate increases in 2016. And as it happened, the Fed only went on to increase rates by 0.25% in 2016. Part of the reason the Fed only did 0.25% in 2015 and 2016 is because we had a little soft patch in the economy and we had a correction in the stock market from the spring of 2015 to the uh, winter of 15 and 16. Those uh, events influenced the Fed. Any ripples in the economy or the stock market moving forward this year would likely influence the Fed as well. Turning to page 32, uh, we're showing that even if the Fed were to raise rates as much as it anticipates, as much as it forecast in March, this would still be a very modest tightening cycle by historical standards. So here we're looking at increases in the federal funds target per month. So how rapidly is the Fed raising interest rates in a rate hike cycle? And so we're plugging in at the far right-hand side of the page here, the Fed's forecast for the next couple of years. And we can see that if the Fed were to raise rates as much as it says it's going to in 2022 and 2023, that would be a faster pace of, of tightening than we saw in the last cycle from 2015 to 2018, but it would be slower than every other rate hike cycle since the mid-1970s. So even if we were to see the Fed do what it says it's going to do, to act as aggressively as it says it's going to act, by historical standards, that would still be a fairly modest tightening cycle. Definitely want to watch the Fed and see what they do in this year and next year. And something else that we're watching very carefully is the geopolitical events happening and the impacts on our economy from that. Yeah, I know that previous editions of the NMI quarterly report didn't include any pages on on geopolitical impacts, but there's a lot of genuine concern right now of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact it's having on the economy. Now, see, you have some pages here in this version of the NMI that focus on on that. Can you tell us what these pages tell us and uh, and why it's important for us to focus on this? Sure. So on pages 33 and 34, we're looking at the direct and indirect impacts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So on page 33, we're showing that the direct impact impact should be minimal on the U.S. economy. Here we're looking at um, the top U.S. export destinations in 2021. Keep in mind that Russia is the 11th largest economy in the world, or at least it was the, the 11th largest economy in the in the world prior to the invasion and the, and the sanctions that came in its wake. Um, but even though it was the 11th largest economy, it ranked only 39th among U.S. export destinations. It's disproportionately unrepresented among U.S. trading partners. And so there shouldn't be much direct impact um, from um, from this conflict. Uh, Ukraine is also disproportionately unrepresented. Um, it, uh, it takes in a smaller share of U.S. exports relative to its standing in the world economy. But as we show on page 34, there will be potentially sizable indirect impacts of the invasion and the ongoing conflict, given their potential influence on inflation. So we're showing a couple of examples here. On the left-hand side of the page, the world's top oil-producing countries, um, Russia's number three behind Saudi Arabia and the U.S. On the right-hand side of the page, we're showing the world's top wheat-producing countries. Russia is number three. Ukraine also 
in the top 10. We know, of course, that Russia is also a big producer of metals. It's um, a big producer of natural gas, one of the world's largest producers, the biggest exporter, in fact, of natural gas. Ukraine is one of the world's leading providers of neon gas, which is a key component in semiconductor production. And so we were beginning to see some signs of hope on the inflation front, some signs of healing, which we'll get to in just a moment here. Uh, the Russian invasion and the impact that it's going to have on several commodities is likely to mean another leg up for inflationary pressures going forward. Since you mentioned inflation, I see that you have other pages in the NMI that talk about that. It's a very hot topic right now. You know, page 35, for example, says inflation spikes give way to sharp declines. That sounds encouraging. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So we're looking at the long history of inflation here on page 35, going all the way back to 1940. And what we're showing here is that we rarely see that spikes are sustained, uh, that when we have a big increase, a big acceleration, as we've seen over the course of the past year, those accelerations generally give way to very sizable decelerations. So as we just mentioned, given the situation in Eastern Europe, it's likely that this spike has not run its course yet. We're going to see a further increase before inflation rolls over. But at some point before long, we are likely to see a sizable decline in the inflation rate as well. And you can see the historical pattern here. Uh, you may uh, note that economists often talk in terms of patterns, a V-shaped pattern or a U-shaped pattern or a W-shaped pattern. And what they're talking about is the way that the, the, the line looks on the chart. You know, a, a V-shaped pattern is a sharp decline and a sharp increase. A W-shaped pattern is a sharp decline, a sharp increase, another decline, and then another increase. Or an L-shaped pattern is when we have um, a, a straight line down and then a, then a flat line, a, a flattening out in a data series. What you don't see on this inflation chart on page 35 is a square root pattern anywhere in the history of a series, a pattern where inflation sharply spikes and then plateaus at a high level. What you do see is a lot of inverted V patterns uh, where we see a sharp spike and then a fairly sizable decline in the inflation rate after that. And it's interesting that when we have seen these sharp spikes historically, there's always been an idiosyncratic reason for these sharp spikes. You know, they haven't happened organically. They've happened exogenously. They've happened for an outside non-economic reason in, in most of these cases. So for example, in the 1940s, we had a couple of sharp spikes in the inflation rate, very much due to World War II. In the early 1950s, another sharp spike, very much due to the Korean War. In the 1970s, well, here's a complicated issue because we had an ongoing organic inflation uh, that was developing in the 1970s, began in the 1960s, lasted all the way into the early 1980s. But during that process, we had two non-organic events um, that shot the inflation rate much higher. In the early 1970s, the Arab oil embargo pushed the inflation rate above 12%. Then we saw a sharp decline. And then we had a second oil crisis in the late 1970s, pushed the inflation rate up to 14%. In all of these cases, the sharp increases, again, driven by idiosyncratic reasons, gave way to fairly sharp declines, even in the mid-1970s, when those idiosyncratic drivers faded, when World War II 
ended, when the Korean War matured and eventually ended, um, and when the Arab oil embargo and the second oil price shock in the late 1970s came to an end, the inflation rate moved down precipitously. The same thing is going to happen here. The inflation spike has been very much driven by COVID. We're going to see another leg up here, very much driven by the war. As those idiosyncratic drivers, those exogenous drivers fade, the inflation rate is likely to come down significantly as well. On page 36, we show that as COVID has faded, um, the healing process has already started. Now, we're going to see some backup here in some of these indicators due to the war, but we already had a substantial healing process as COVID was starting to show signs of retreating. So on the left-hand side of the page, we're showing the number of commodities in the ISM manufacturing survey reported on a month-to-month -month basis to be in short supply. So you can see that we uh, spiked at 36 in the summer of 2021. We hit a bottom um, late last year at just 10 commodities reported to be in short supply by these manufacturing companies. We've seen a little bit of a move up since then, and, and the most recent move up, up to 24 in March, very much due to the war in Eastern Europe. So we're seeing a backup here, but still not the extremes that we saw last summer. The right-hand side of the page, again, we're showing the healing process here, business inventories. Inventories were very, very lean coming out of the 2020 recession. They have been rebuilt. We had a big inventory build at the end of, of last year, and you can see the yearly change in business inventories um, now at its fastest pace in more than a decade. And we see a number of other indicators pointing in this direction as well. Labor force participation has been ticking higher, uh, for, for example. The quit rate in the labor market has ticked a little bit lower. So we're seeing a healing process. Uh, some of the extremes of the last few years are beginning to fade a bit as COVID has faded. Now, again, we've got another risk factor with the invasion and the situation in Eastern Europe. We're going to see um, a bit of a relapse in some of these indicators. But the big picture story is that there is some healing underneath the surface that's already taken place. And there is room for more um, as uh, um, the situation in Eastern Europe finally comes to an end. You know, a lot of people do have concerns right now, some worries about a potential recession coming up on the horizon. So when it comes to indicators to look out for things like that, what are what are some indicators or the indicator you would recommend that our readers focus on? So the the key indicator, which is in our deck every quarter, is on page thirty seven, and that's the yield curve or the spread between the federal funds target and the ten year U.S. Treasury yield. Now, it was uh, a, a very newsworthy development late in the first quarter when the two year Treasury yield moved um, briefly. Um, and modestly above the 10-year Treasury yield. So we saw an inversion in the spread between the two-year part of the Treasury curve and the 10-year part of the Treasury curve. That's an indicator that perhaps, perhaps growth expectations are diminishing. We've had a number of other indicators that would give some investors pause. Consumer expectations are running well below consumer confidence in the present situation. That's usually an indicator that the economic growth rate is due to slow. We have obviously had the Federal Reserve raising short-term interest rates and 
saying that it's going to continue to raise short-term interest rates through this year and into 2023. We've had an inflation rate that's continued to climb and came in at 7.9% in February and likely to take another leg up given geopolitical developments. And we have those geopolitical developments themselves, which lend an air of uncertainty um, to the economy and to, to the financial markets. But there is one indicator that's more important than all of those. And again, that's what we show here on page 37, the key indicator of the business cycle, the most prescient indicator and the most practical indicator of the business cycle. This is the spread between the 10-year and the federal funds rate, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield and the federal funds target. And you can see, we look at this on, on page 37, we look at this indicator all the way back to the early 1970s. You can see that in front of every recession, this spread has inverted. And the recessions here are marked by, by the shaded areas. Every time we've had a recession, this indicator has signaled the recession, has tipped us off, has flagged the recession by inverting with the federal funds rate moving above the 10-year treasury. Now, this is important for two reasons. It's, a, it's, it's an important indicator for two reasons. Number one, it's an indicator of how tight monetary policy is relative to market expectations. If the Fed sets its benchmark short-term interest rate above the market set long-term interest rate, that's a sign that monetary policy is tight relative to market expectations. But very practically, it's also an indicator of whether there is an incentive for the financial system to create money or not. Um, banks borrow at the short end of the curve. They lend at the longer end of the curves. So when the yield curve is steep, when there's a nice healthy gap between long-term rates and short-term rates, the financial system has an incentive to make loans and thereby create money. When, when that gap is flat or negative, the system no longer has that incentive and no surprise, no coincidence. We see that money creation tends to fade and the economy and the markets accordingly. Right now, even with some parts of the yield curve flattening out and inverting, the key portion of the curve, the short end, the very short end to the 10-year to the part of the curve, is still very healthy. There is still a very healthy gap between the 10-year part of the curve and the overnight, the federal funds part of, of the curve. At the end of, of the first quarter, there was over a 200 basis point, two full percentage point difference between the 10-year Treasury yield and the federal funds rate. That means there's a lot of runway still uh, for this expansion. So the end game may be underway. The Fed has started to raise rates in response to a much higher inflation rate, a very tight labor market. The Fed is likely to continue to raise rates uh, for, for some time here, as long as inflation remains high and as long as the labor market remains tight. And given the, the historical track record, there's a decent chance that this tightening cycle will eventually lead into an outright recession. But as a number of our charts show, and as this chart on page 37 in particular makes clear, it's going to be some time before financial conditions are tight enough to signal that a recession is coming. The Fed has a lot of room to raise rates before we get that red flag from this key indicator. The yield curve chart you have here on page 37 is a wonderful example of, of all the informative commentary and, and insight into the economy and financial markets that the NMI provides. And I really appreciate 
you providing additional commentary and going even deeper into what this NMI report shares with our audience. And what message do you think our readers will take away from, from this quarter's NMI? So I think the key takeaway here is that the risks are rising. The risks are beginning to accumulate in a way that they haven't so far in this cycle. Um, we have higher inflation than we've had even going back to last year in this cycle. We finally have the Fed raising short-term interest rates for the first time in this cycle. We're going to continue to, to see higher short-term interest rates as this year plays out. And now we have a major geopolitical event that has given us a dose of uncertainty, both economically and in, in the financial markets. So the risks are gathering, and we absolutely acknowledge them in the NMI deck. At the same time, the, the, the indicators that, that tell us where we are in the business cycle, they'll say that we are in an early, a relatively early stage. We're not in the end stage yet of this cycle. There is still a lot of room for this economy to grow. There's still a lot of room for financial markets to perform before this cycle comes to an end. That should be the key takeaway from the Q2 NMI. Brian, thank you so much again for providing your additional commentary on this report. And for our audience, if you wanted to visit uh, nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics, you can see a digital version of the uh, NMI book and see all the information that's in there on your own and share it with other people if you want to as well. So thanks again, Brian. And uh, that wraps it up. The information provided by Nationwide Economics is general in nature and not intended as investment or economic advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. Additionally, it does not take into account any specific investment objectives, tax, or financial condition, or particular needs of any specific person. The economic and market forecasts reflect our opinion as of the date of this report and are subject to change without notice. These forecasts show a broad range of possible outcomes. Because they are subject to high levels of uncertainty, they will not reflect actual performance. We obtain certain information from sources deemed reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or fairness. Nationwide and the Nationwide N and Eagle are service marks of the Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Copyright 2022. Nationwide.